This episode of The Body Serve is brought to you by Health IQ, an insurance agency that helps health-conscious people like runners, vegans, weightlifters, and you guessed it, tennis players, get lower rates on life insurance. Go to healthiq.com bodyserve or mention the promo code bodyserve when speaking with an agent to support the show and see if you qualify. But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 113. One, oh, it is. It is. You were wrong on the agenda. Oh, you had shit. skipped one ahead and you said 114. And you should know it was 113 because we made a pre- pretty big deal out of the number on the last one. Mm-hmm. Peaches and cream, remember? You know what I mean? Peaches and cream. <laughs> you are not redeemed. <laughs> this week, we have two main issues to talk about. Oh, I say this week because we've been pretty regular lately. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to say... Been eating our fiber and... Oh my God. <laughs> I don't want to say that we're a weekly show at this point, but we've been we've been coming at you. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> but the big stories this week are... Jeannie Bouchard is about to cash her Trump check. <laughs> Can we still make that joke in these times? Uh, yeah. Hmm. I said what I said. All right. Another, <laughs> another Miss Leaks reference. Yes. Like, you know, Nene Leaks, Lenithia, is really bringing it to this season of Real Housewives of Atlanta. Excuse me, she what? She is back. Excuse me? She is back. You say that again one more time. You heard what I said. Okay, because you, you've been questioning what is her purpose for a long time. I have, time. because for a long time, she got really mean. Mm-hmm. She kind of spiraled into this diva, I'm on a Ryan Murphy show y'all bitches can't fuck with me that is and true it became really unpleasant because the the fun parts of nini is when she's a little messy when she's reading people when she's telling exactly but telling when Croy that he just got a new butt implant but when it's funny mm. things with kim got really nasty toward the end of their first run on the show but i maintain and i think you do too kim and nini are the central dynamic on real housewives of atlanta Real Housewives of Atlanta is Nini's birthright. It is, but Nini is funniest when she's reading Kim. Yeah, all this was to point out that you wanted her gone and was happy to have her gone. I wanted wanted Zolciak gone too. Yeah, so I just, uh, I'm a little bit taken aback by these comments now. I'm just saying, the last episode was hilarious. You digress. We are talking about Jeannie Bouchard's victory, her 75% victory against the USTA, mm-hmm. and we're also talking about the massive proposed changes to Davis Cup, which this is one of those issues that finally there's something big that's happening that neither of us is particularly perturbed by in terms of not having, uh, what is it, a horse in the race? Yes, a, a dog in the fight. Mm, mm-hmm. Sure, Same a, thing. a fish in the school. <laughs> Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Like we get it. I'll we get it. all perspectives. So we're just gonna gonna be talking a bit of, of a few of them. Yeah. So if you wanted a break from our rather more passionate opinions about Ryan Harrison and Donald Young, this is it. Yeah. This, <laughs> this is, is our closest to neutral as we get. And then we're gonna run through some of the results at the end. Mm. So let's talk. Let's start with Davis Cup. Okay. So what happened was that the ITF released news that they were proposing a major change to Davis Cup, along with Gerard Piquet, who is the founder and president of this Cosmos Investment Group. With a K. With a K. He's a soccer player. Apparently very popular. Still married to Shigeru? Oh, is that who he was? Yeah. Oh. Oh my god. Is that where the tennis connection comes into why Rafa was in her video? Oh, I have no idea. Oh, it's starting to make more sense. Barcelona. Mm. That's who he plays for, right? Spanish connection. Yeah. So they released this huge, huge upheaval of Davis Cup. And apparently what was happening behind the scenes, last May, Diario AS, a Spanish sport newspaper, reported that Piquet was actually negotiating with the ATP to create an event parallel to Davis Cup. 
So to compete with Davis Cup, like a World Cup of tennis. Now it seems that the ITF got involved and it looks like they kind of, rather than trying to beat them, join them, kind of absorb the, co- absorb the competition. If that report that you just cited is to be believed. Sure. But it, it wasn't rumors. It was actually published. I'm just saying, do we know for sure that that was the original intent? For it to run parallel. Maybe maybe the intent all along was to Usurp. influence the ITF mm-hmm. to totally revolutionize Davis Cup. Mind you, it's only a proposal so far. It still has to be approved in August at the general meeting in Orlando. But there is so much money behind this and the support of top players that it's hard to see this not being approved in some form. Maybe not in every way. It's reportedly a $3 billion investment over 25 years. My, my first thought in seeing that and the money is we go from a place of not being certain about the Davis Cup's survival to having a new investor ready to throw $3 billion into it right. over a quarter century, which is the first thing that has me skeptical in terms of the intentions. Well, a group of people obviously see the potential for a lot of financial windfall out of this idea. We haven't actually explained what the proposal is. Okay. So the world group will play at some point in the calendar at the end of the year, kind of a week-long festival of tennis and entertainment. I'm told it's the last week of November. That would be around the same time that the Davis Cup final is normally played, after the World Tour finals, Mm -hmm. right? And so there would be 18 countries represented, the 16 world group teams, and then two other teams kind of wild cards we don't know how they would be voted on yet it's modeled sort of after the world tour finals they would play a round robin at the beginning with all 16 teams it would consist of two singles and one doubles match and they would be in best of three format and then the winning teams would play in a quarterfinals knockout stage and so on to the semis and the finals presumably with so many matches in a short period of time this would make better use of the full team in that I, I don't you could have one player play both singles matches all right? well it would be one singles match it would be two singles and a doubles in the best of three right, right? the reverse singles so, are are done away with right but i imagine there'd be more room for that third singles player okay that's my initial read now the interesting thing is that all of the groups that are below the world group, the zone, group one, group two, etc., will actually follow the same, like the existing Davis Cup structure. So they'll be playing in ties throughout the year around the world, trying to bump up their status and get into the different groups. Of course, a lot is up in the air because this is still just a proposal. There's a lot of fanciful language about many world-class cities have shown interest. It's meant to be a quote, major season-ending finale that will be a festival of tennis and entertainment. So a lot of people are putting a lot of money into this. Now, like we said, we are fairly neutral about Davis Cup. It doesn't really inspire passion on either side for me. I We've acknowledged that there are some problems with the scheduling and with the format, and it can extend an already overcrowded year. But I'm interested in looking at all the pros and cons here. Okay. I think Davis Cup, as it stands, has a lot of value. A lot of people like the way that it goes to cities you don't, that don't normally see tennis, uh, that shines a spotlight and, and lets certain players be heroes who don't get to be on the regular tour. They get to play players they normally don't get to play. Mm-hmm. They get to play on a big enough stage that they may, let's face it, never get to play in their entire careers. Right, right. And for players that this is important to, it allows them to represent their country. Frith, our friend on Twitter, has been to Davis Cup ties in Australia. She's pretty passionate about the event in general and has talked about the potential to inspire young fans and to grow the sport. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. If this proposal is accepted, it's fair to say that the Davis Cup will look nothing like what it did before. We've heard complaints for a long time now from some in the tennis media from a lot of the top players in particular that the davis cup needed to be tweaked and what were some of the complaints to that end it was well the schedule is already overcrowded you're playing three weeks out of the year at inconvenient times one after the australian open 
think one after Madrid and then again after what the after, World Tour Finals after the U.S. Open uh, the U.S. Open and then yeah. finally in November at the very tail end of the season. A lot of times the travel doesn't make sense. I think one of the knocks on Davis Cup from a fan perspective is that it can be really difficult to follow. That it's spread throughout the calendar. It's hard to remember who won which tie and when and where. Um, who is in World Group? What is World Group? What is the Zone 1, Zone 2? As more countries have joined Davis Cup, it's gotten quite complicated. And for a casual tennis fan, it can be really hard to keep track of these things. There's also a critique that the format seems a little bit outdated, in that while 25 years ago this may have worked well, when the schedule wasn't as crowded, we're in a totally different climate now in terms of the the professionalization of tennis. Mm -hmm. There are more demands on players, and it also has its... it, it has competition as well. For a long time, it was the only tennis event where you got to really represent your country in a meaningful way. There's the Olympics again now. There is what we saw with the Labor Cup last year. There's all these different competitors vying for its its space in the tennis spectrum. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing tiebreak tennis popping up. There's going to be that big event in New York City right before Indian Wells. It's It's just a lot. And Davis Cup has always held this position as being pure and the event that the dutiful player will attend because there's a nobility and the prestige with with being a patriot, right? That representing mm-hmm. this Olympic ideal, that representing your country is the be-all and end-all, which runs antithetical to professional tennis. No matter how many times you see the Spanish flag be- beside Nadal's name or US beside Serena on a television broadcast, it's all largely bullshit, right? These players are here representing for their pocket and their their family's well-being and, you know, their, their whole personal gain. Well, and, I don't know if it... For a lot of players, it is very important. It is. But I think we're moving further and further away from nationhood, in the Western world especially, that it's becoming less and less central to someone's identity. Interesting. I was about to get to that really? before you interrupted me. Yes. <laughs> My point is that was another reason why Davis Cup in this current time is undercut. Mm. Because not only do people not know what to make of it a lot of the times in terms of following it linearly throughout the multiple stops during the year, like this idea of winning this team event, this in a lot of ways kind of ambiguous team event for your country doesn't have the gravitas or the the meaning or the context Mm. as it did before. That's right. that's one critique. Now, this is where, if I'm to take issue with this proposal, it's it's following the money. I would like to see more transparency with what's going to be happening with this supposed $3 billion investment. Because for a lot of federations and smaller countries, this is how they fund their tennis. Yes. That's and so if point. you're going to be telling me that, well, this is for the good of tennis... This is for the development of tennis. Well, tell me specifically how these smaller federations are not going to be left out and where this is not just a money grab. This is an endeavor with the the pure intent to keep Davis Cup alive, the spirit of Davis Cup, and not just a money grab for some outside investor, Mr. Piquet and his um, investment group, Mm -hmm. to make a buttload of cash, entice top players to make so much more money as well, and have the have-nots lose out even more. Because this is how capitalism works, mm-hmm. right? Well, and this is also how startup culture works. I think we can kind of situate that in the tech boom. Startup companies are finding gaps in the marketplace and trying to fill it. So when you say you wonder where this money is going to be allocated and how it's going to be invested, I hope that's detail that they will bring to the general meeting in August. So members of the ITF can vote with all the knowledge that they need. I, I was taken aback a little about this huge investment into uh, like grassroots projects and developing tennis internationally because I obviously think that's important, but I also want to see a lot more detail about it. And clearly we're in the planning stages and they're not really required to share that stuff with us, but I hope that that is being seriously developed internally. Let's get into some of the pros. I've seen a lot of folks upset with this proposal because it will take away tennis 
from those smaller venues, those smaller countries, mm. the home and away tie dynamic will no longer be there. Whereas, you know, Spain is playing France. Spain can say, well, I'm going to set this up. We're the home team. We're going to set this up on the very best clay court surface for Nadal mm -hmm. to wreak havoc. And you have that, that home court advantage kind of built in. And that's a very specific facet of Davis Cup as it exists now. Right. And so that's being taken away. I wonder, your point about like surfaces and locations and stuff like that, is this going to homogenize the competition? Is it going to be indoor hard court? Like the World Tour Finals is now, like a lot of the end of the year tournaments are. This is certainly not my favorite surface of tennis. It's not representative of international tennis as a whole either because clay, grass, and hard are all very important surfaces. Indoor hardcourt represents something different to me. So are ties going to be played on indoor clay? Outdoor clay? Outdoor grass? Like, I, I find it very hard to believe that there will be any sort of surface diversity. I imagine wherever it will go, it's going to be on indoor hardcourts, right? Not necessarily. This is the main sticking point for me in in not being totally against this idea is the supposed commitment to not homogenize the surfaces. Mm. They claim that they're going to be seeking out sites and venues that will rotate surfaces every year. Okay. And if you think about it, an event, it's, it's going to be a pretty big event because if you have 18 countries, that's nine ties going on at any given time, mm -hmm. right? And a maximum of three matches in each of the nine ties. That's potentially 27 matches on any given day or session. Mm -hmm. So you need a big enough event. You can't just have a venue that's going to be able to have one main indoor show court. Right. You need a tennis venue. And so this has to be, this is the main sticking point for me. Like this is, this is the crux of the matter. Like they have to select the venues in good faith and rotate the surfaces. But what city is going to be ready? for 2019, if that's the goal. Can can a city build a tennis facility from scratch in that time, or are they gonna have to go with a city that has already hosted one? To start, it would have to be a city yeah. that has already hosted one. Okay. So to my mind, it probably makes sense that it's somewhere in South America at that time of year. Okay. So if I were to bet, if it's not, if they're not gonna go the easy way out and do an indoor event to start, I would put money on it being in South America to start on clay oh, really? in 2019. That'd be my prediction. Oh. See, as a cynic, I would say it's going to be somewhere in the global north in a economic powerhouse of a city. So either in Japan, China, Singapore, UK, or US. That's what that, I... That makes sense? Yeah. The other thing that gives me pause is what's going to happen to those gap weeks now where Davis Cup was happening. You said that the the lower tiers will still be competing those weeks. That would mean that the majority of the top players are not playing at that time. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that the, the tours are going to add more events? Well, well, as we've seen in the past, when there are gaps in the calendar, tournaments spring up to fill those gaps. A lot of players want more tournaments. They want as many opportunities as possible to gain points and make money, which I get. A lot of the top players want fewer tournaments, fewer responsibilities, because they have enough points and enough money to sustain them through the year. And they make more money on sponsorships, right? There has to be a give and take, a balancing act. In my opinion, there should be some dead weeks in the, in the calendar, basically. There should be some breaks. We see injury problems. All, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that this is a problem, but we both believe that it is. So that could be seen as a pro. Leave those, leave those weeks open. But again, it will only benefit players from those countries who are at the very top level of competition. Mm -hmm. Things I don't want to see, this idea of this so-called fifth slam be emboldened by this, mm. this move where, oh great, a week has opened up in the calendar, let's make our event two weeks and call it the fifth I slam. I mean, Larry Ellison is liable to make Indian Wells three and a half weeks at this point. <laughs> Things I do want to see, top players taking advantage of that time off. And also, if you are to add more events, add more 250s. Add smaller events. Let, mm. the, let the players ranked 50 to 250 eat during those weeks. Right. right. <laughs> top players stay away. Let those other players make some money. Let's talk about a pro. 
I think we did a couple probes. Okay. Didn't we? Another one is that this is a huge investment in tennis. This is not a method to undermine international competition. I see it as an investment in Davis Cup, albeit in a very different format, and a huge, huge increase in prize money. They obviously think that this will generate enough revenue that they'll be able to pay the prize money no problem. But I think that has to be seen as a good thing for tennis. This does address one of the critiques of Davis Cup that we mentioned. It does make the competition easier to follow. It's contained within a single week. It makes the rules and the conventions easier to understand for a casual viewer, I think. For me, a lot of this is is speculation at this point. Mm -hmm. Much like Labor Cup last year, we'll see how it turns out. A lot of people thought Labor Cup was a total gimmick, was going to be a total shit show, and it ended up being pretty successful. So we could lambast this this new format from now till next November, or November after next, and it ends up being this massive success, and then within two years, nobody's really too upset about it. My initial reaction to this whole thing was that, wow, I expected maybe they'd come up with some small tweaks that ended up being fairly meaningless to address the, the concerns that people mm-hmm. have, and instead they took a, a sledgehammer. And the mere, <laughs> mere fact that they, they made so many changes was like, wow, you know, I like this. Not having a horse in the race again, right. or a fish in the school. Having had more time to think about it, I just want to follow the money and the intentions. You know, that's where mm. that's where I'm most concerned about now, because like no fix to this was going to please everybody. This was one of those really difficult situations to tackle in tennis. You know, like everybody had ideas and nobody could agree on anything. And so anything that was done was going to cause some kerfuffle. And they've kind of blown it up now. We'll, I'm, I'm willing to give it a chance. I just want to make sure that the, the people in charge are making sound decisions that are not just about their pocket and will serve the so-called integrity of the event. This is such a venerated event in tennis history. Aside from the four Grand Slams, this is an old, respected tradition. And tennis fans hear a lot about tradition, and I think that we can respect it in a way that also accommodates the needs of a professionalized, totally different tennis landscape. In the 1920s, you had literal empires facing off in Davis Cup. You had the British Empire, the United States, France, Germany, and a lot of times the same, you know, three or four teams would win many, many times. There was something that seemed of historical importance to Davis Cup, and it's different now. It doesn't mean it shouldn't exist, but it certainly needs to adapt. The shift in tennis has been to the Grand Slams. That's the main focus in tennis now, for good or bad. And that's overshadowed Davis Cup. And with the denigration of Davis Cup over decades and bad decisions that have been made in running it over decades. We're at a point where it is what it is or it was what it was. Mm. And I don't think you could make the argument that nothing needed to be done to Davis Cup. As to whether this was too much, that's another matter. Now, the other thing is that they're calling it, what, the World Cup of Tennis? Are they renaming it? I don't... I'm unclear about that. Okay. But I, I heard some that the, the event, the one-week event, is going to be the World Cup of Tennis or something. Oh. How are you going to have an event and title it that and exclude the woman? And why are all these sweeping <laughs> changes being made to Davis yeah. Cup and nothing being done to Fed Cup? I saw one of our listeners, Joanna, Jesna3 on Twitter, muse that, well, maybe they're not doing anything to Fed Cup right now because the men are complaining more than the women. Or that the men are the bigger complainers. <laughs> <laughs> We saw this with Labor Cup as well, and also the WTA's move for the their year-end championships earlier this year, their big announcement. But the men's tour really sees the women as completely separate. You see it in the unionization debate. They believe that women should fight for what they want, but they should fight separately. That they don't, they don't have the same goals. There's no solidarity among the tours. And that is something really unfortunate, in my opinion. But it's clear, it's ingrained. We see it over and over again. Is this fixing the wrong problem with the format Mm -hmm. rather than the schedule? Because the schedule isn't really affected that much. In theory, we have those three open weeks for the top players to get some extra rest. But if they're going to be participating, that's, that's a really intense amount of play at the end of the year. 
in such a short time yeah to then add to the schedule because for the the majority of tennis players their season ended even before the world tour finals because that's mm-hmm. only the top eight i'm thinking of a player like juan martin del potro whose country often makes it really deep in davis cup he played basil he's gonna play the late tournaments into the year he's great on a fast court provided he's healthy right he could make the world tour finals and then go to this World Cup of Tennis. This adds another week of competition, another week of travel for a lot of the top players. Is it worth it? Or as you said, is it addressing the major critique of Davis Cup as it is? We shall see. Let's have a quick word from our sponsor via us. (laughs) Health IQ is a life insurance agency that's looking to get you better rates, basically, if you're health conscious, if you're an athlete, a vegan even. We accept vegans here. The idea is that if you take better care of yourself, you're less of a risk to insurers, which makes sense. I do want to say a lot of people our age, in our 30s and 40s, may not want to believe that they need life insurance, but you are in the market for life insurance. Take care of your family. And so how does this work? Okay, so if you want to qualify for these better rates, you can either take a quiz on healthiq.com slash bodysurf, or you can track your progress through a fitness app. There's several approved apps that they offer. You can log workouts, races that you've done to basically show evidence that you're taking care of yourself. And that will unlock the better rates to your health insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash bodysurf, or Mention BodyServe as the promo code when you speak to an agent. Moving on to Genie. <laughs> oh, you really want to talk about Genie. I think you'll find that the theme of this BodyServe episode is moderation. Following this Bouchard trial, which she won, she is receiving damages from the USTA. One of the things that I kept thinking was, my personal feelings aside, I think was this was the right decision. I think it's important to separate our feelings about Jeannie Bouchard from analyzing what actually went on in this court case. Because to me, it actually, if the person were not famous, it would make a lot of sense. The outcome went how you would expect it to go. We finally learned or got some insight into what was being asked for in this lawsuit because we we speculated for a while, why hasn't the USTA settled this court case Mm -hmm. for so long? And we learned after the fact that Jeannie's lawyer was asking for millions upon millions of dollars. (laughs) I think that's verbatim. Yes. And so maybe the USDA just was like, well, there's no way we can settle this ahead of time because we just are not prepared to pay out that much money. We're not going to give them what they want in in a settlement. And the judge instructed the jury to assign fault by percentage, whether to the USDA or to Jeannie, and the, the jury came back very quickly, saying that the USDA was at fault 75% to Genie's 25%. And at that point, it became clear that this was going to be a big payout for Genie. Yes. The deliberation took, by reports, about a half hour, which was only slightly longer than the judge's instructions to the jury. Following this story from Twitter was Daniel Kaplan, who is a sports business lawyer, and Ben Rothenberg. They both seem to be on site So check their Twitter feeds for, you know, blow-by-blow analysis Mm -hmm. and and reports. What was curious to me is that the USDA came with such underwhelming support evidence in their favor to this trial. (laughs) I saw that they came with one witness. Yeah. And that the the foreign substance, this mysterious foreign substance that we've seen quoted Mm -hmm. since 2015 as being the agent that Jeannie slipped and fell on in the locker room, that it was being used for the first time. Correct. So, I mean, you on one hand, the USDA wants to say, well, that's a closed-off area. Once the physio is not there, then Jeannie has no business being in that room. But, like, this is the first time you're using this substance, and mm-hmm. it does not look good for you. The USDA also blamed the WTA, the trainers, for leaving early, and thus making it acceptable for the USTA staff to go in and clean the floors. They also blame Jeannie Bouchard, as we've heard in the media since it happened, 
for being in the locker room both unattended and after the proscribed time that she was supposedly allowed to be in the locker room. For me, this boils down to creating a safe working environment. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. There's no way you can get around that, to my mind. And the the whole Ingenie's argument in terms of the amount of money that should be coming to her is this whole business of lost endorsements and that it, mm-hmm. it affected her career detrimentally. But there are receipts on the WTA's website as far as the trajectory of Genie's career <laughs> up until that point. Yes. There's no need to be excessively messy about it, but I think you have noted here that Genie was 15 and 15 on the year up until that point. People are looking back now in hindsight, well, damn, if this hadn't happened to Genie, if she had gone on to play Roberta Vinci, then maybe Serena's career Grand Slam wouldn't have been derailed, mm-hmm. which is kind of mind-blowing to think about in retrospect. However, Vinci in the week prior had beaten Genie 616 Love. So that was not <laughs> a given. <laughs> Correct. You know, this whole thing is one big mess. It is. So Jeannie's team, they kind of argued everything and the kitchen sink, right? They are tried to argue that her career arc took a severe downturn as a result of the injury at the 2015 U.S. Open. Objection, Your Honor. False. <laughs> so, <laughs> and they also argue, among other things, that... More more than a physical injury, she suffered emotional and mental injuries, stress, anxiety, depression, that she also lost potential endorsement money. That was another argument. The emotional stress and the physical stress, I absolutely believe, mm-hmm. because we mm-hmm. saw Jeannie try to come back from this concussion. And in the Asian swing in 2015, she had to stop her match in her first match back. I think it was Wuhan at the time. Yes. And it was very disturbing scenes watching that unfold Mm -hmm. live. And we've seen it with another Canadian superstar, Sidney Crosby, have concussions really imperil his career. I mean, he's mostly recovered, but we're not going to sit here and talk about someone's physical well-being and say that such and such was responsible for this or not, right? Mm -hmm. Concussion, brain injuries are extremely serious. And the fact that Jeannie is thinking that maybe... Had she not had this happen to her, she could have gone on to make the second week of the U.S. Open. Her career would have been back on track. That's kind of immaterial mm-hmm. with respect to the case because the fact is that the USDA was negligent. And to my mind, they should be made to be held accountable for mm-hmm. that. Correct. I think, honestly, I think that's the best argument. From my perspective, like you said, the USDA contributed to creating a workplace that was not safe. The arguments that she knew she shouldn't have been in the locker room at a certain time just don't hold water. I I think they don't hold water with the general public, and the jury certainly didn't believe it. And keep in mind, too, that the USTA running the U.S. Open is making millions upon millions of dollars every year at these Grand Slams. Yes. And this goes for all the federations that oversee Grand Slam tournaments. And uh, whenever... A corporate entity is making that much money off the backs of its players. I want to hold them to the fire when it comes to the bare minimum that you must ensure is that these players are being protected. And in this case, you provide a safe working environment for you to make all that money off of them. I th- we might see it differently if the player were less ostentatious, uh, maybe ranked 200 in the world, was in the doubles draw, for example, someone who is not famous. If that person sustained an injury in the locker room and it was reasonable to assume that the USTA held partial responsibility, we would be so in favor of that person getting what was due to them, right? But the reality of that is that that person probably wouldn't have had their story told in the first place. Correct. Would this lawsuit have taken hold in the first Mm. place? And would the damages be meaningful at well, all? The damages certainly wouldn't rise to the level of Genie's because she has multi-million dollar sponsorships. She has a Wimbledon final, semifinals and Grand Slams. Like her prize money potential, you could argue, was so much bigger than a lower ranked player. But would we sympathize with another player? Mm-hmm. Genie is just a polarizing figure. You know, during this period from the end of 2015 until now she's been endorsed by rolex she's associated with nike and coca-cola 
not to mention Pinties, the Canadian frozen food company. Oh my god. She's been in Sports Illustrated with her ass out several times. And no judgment there, but like she's she is out there. She's making money. She's a big name. She's got visibility. So many people are not disposed to sympathizing with her. The USTA's lawyers said that this idea that she suffered endorsement losses is complete hogwash because we know that she turned down Jaguar. It is it is kind of silly. I, I think in that situation, their argument was probably pretty sound. And Jeannie's team tried to keep the, endorse, the, the details of her endorsements out of the court reports, out of the public eye. And that's obvious because she's making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And this, can you imagine whatever that figure is, what that would have looked like? We've been through the Maria and Serena endorsement gap issue before. Yes. And if it came out that (laughs) Jeannie were in the even remote vicinity as Serena, that would have been something else. Mm -hmm. And what happened in this case was, fine, Jeannie won. She won the trial. The USTA was on on the hook for 75% of the blame. There was going to be a payout. Now it comes to deciding what that payout is going to be. And part of that process is, well, Jeannie, you have to tell us now what your endorsements are and what it is that you would have lost. (laughs) And part of that is, well, it may have exposed that, well, she really didn't really lose that much. And also, we would have seen just how much she made. And at that point, it became clear from the live reports that there was going to be a settlement. Yeah. Because after the judge denied Jeannie's lawyer's requests to have the courtroom closed for that portion Mm -hmm. of the trial... Then they were like, well, well, damn, like we've got to settle this right <laughs> yeah. now. We're going to go behind closed doors, work out a settlement that is mutually agreeable and just be done with it. It seems to me that the figure that was settled upon is in the likely 10 to $15 million range. That's what's being said from people who were there and have some expertise in, in and sport people who business. Are, and people who have the ear of the gossips on the street. Right, <laughs> right. John Wertheim tweeted out that, you know, he spoke to, to several people and it seems that Jeannie made considerably more, or at the very least a minimum of more than what the winners of the 2015 US Open made, which yes. was $3.3 million. <laughs> so that's that. That chapter in tennis history is closed. It carried on for two and a half years. I, I still can't believe it's been so long. I remember exactly where I was sitting down watching Jeannie play with Kyrgios in doubles at that U.S. Open. And then the fall happened shortly after Mm -hmm. that. I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting at a bar uh, by myself. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was waiting on you to pick me up. Okay. After work. And I was watching it. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that you really can't put in in legalese, right? There was a feeling from some people, especially Jeannie's fans, that she had recaptured some magic at that tournament. She was in the fourth round which she had to withdraw from. She was winning matches and mixed doubles with Dikirios. She looked that she was having fun on court, especially after losing. She lost in her first match at home in uh, in Rogers Cup. In, I mean, that's the case every in year. In Cincinnati. At the yes, Rogers but, Cup. Yeah, I was you know, being snide. But this was, she was kind of a top player, right? She had fallen to around 25, I think, in the rankings. But you can't, you can't argue that, hey, if she didn't fall, she would have reached the final. Like, like, obviously, that's not a thing. This speaks to the kind of the mystery and the potentiality of sport. How do you put that in into a number? How do you say she lost this much in prize money because she fell? And you just, you can't do it. It's been the case for a little while now, but you can be damn sure she won't be getting any wild cards to UST sanctioned <laughs> events. So she better get that ranking that's, up. That's true. She <laughs> might be fighting through qualifying at Indian Wells. Let's go through some of the results from last week mm. before we finish up. Okay. Before we get into that, news just broke before we came to air that Nadal withdrew Ugh. from Acapulco. With yeah. It's unclear if it's a recurrence of the same exact injury that he had in Australia or it's a similar one mm-hmm. to what he had in Australia. But he, he practiced with Manorino yesterday. I think he played a practice set and reports where he won at 7-6. And then afterward, he felt something, and then he went to the doctors today. This is from his own mouth. Did an MRI and says that there's some fluid there, and they have to 
get to the bottom of it. He said it's impossible for him to play. He doesn't know how long he'll be out. He hopes that subsequent tests will be positive. He hopes to play Indian Wells, but he cannot say today what will happen. Which sucks. <laughs> it sucks, but... On the face of it, like when you see Rafa Nadal retire from a Grand Slam match, I just had this sinking feeling that this was going to be something that was going to either A, linger or be serious. Mm-hmm. And at first, we got reports that it wasn't that serious, but it seems like it's lingering. The thing is, he's 31. At this stage in his career, he wasn't even expected to be here. He's got to save his body for clay. He's got a lot of points to defend, and I don't want him destroying his body on hard courts. That's just me, from like a fan perspective. The USTA announced today that it will honor Althea Gibson with a statue at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. Yes, this is the good news portion of the podcast. Finally, Althea Gibson is starting to receive the recognition that she deserves. Katrina Adams made a point to call her the Jackie Robinson of tennis, Although I understand her motivation, I have to object because Althea Gibson is the Althea Gibson of tennis. There's no qualifier necessary. She's not Jackie Robinson. She is her. She did what she did, and she earned it in an extremely hostile climate. We forgot to mention last week that Canadian Gabby Dabrowski has entered the top 10 in doubles for the very first time. She's been a Grand Slam champion before. But she's risen to number eight in the doubles rankings after winning Doha with Yelena Ostapenko. And you have noted here that she's only the fourth Canadian woman in the top ten of either singles or doubles. Yeah. Point of clarification, she's a Grand Slam mixed doubles champion. Okay. Two times over. Right. As for the results from last week, Miss Svitolina defended her title in Dubai. She beat Wang, Osaka, Kerber, Kazetkina. Now, do you remember... I predicted that Dasha Kazakina would be in the top 10 at the end of the year. I do remember It that. was a long shot, I admit. But she was also your pick for breakout player too, wasn't she? No. No, no, no. You didn't pick her? I picked Svitolina a long time ago. No, breakout player for this year. No, I didn't How pick... How can Svitolina be pick? breakout player? Who did I pick? No, no, I picked um, Sabalenka, I think. Okay. But Kazakina did me a solid and had a great run through a pretty big tournament and... Uh, increased her chances of finishing in the year on top 10. Look at who she beat. Radwanska, Joanna Conta, Vesnina, last year's Indian Wells champ, and Muguruza, and then fell to Svitolina in the final. Elsewhere, in Rio, Mr. Diego Schwartzman is now a top 20 player. He's ranked number 18 in the world after winning the title, beating Fernando Verdasco in the final. Like, how can you not love this guy? He's everywhere on Instagram. He's posting Instagram stories without a shirt on, dancing. He was so excited to win this title in South America, and he is like an optimistic five foot seven. Yeah, I walked but, right by him in Cincinnati and had you, to turn and you, around. You and looked down. I did right? not say that. I had to look back <laughs> to like take stock of the situation in many regards. <laughs> <laughs> but look at Fernando. He beat Dominic Team. He bageled him in the second set and Dominic Team is at home on clay. He's supposed to win these smaller tournaments. A head scratching loss from Dominic Team. This uh, is this I is new shoe. But on, on clay he's normally very consist- consistent. But Verdasco also won the doubles title with Marrero. Probably the big news, the biggest news of all the winners last week from a biased North American media perspective. <laughs> Francis Tiafo, Big foe. Won his first title in Del- Delray Beach. Won a fly-ass car. Do you see the pictures of him <laughs> yeah, posing yeah. up beside it? We saw him score the biggest win of his career against Zverev in Cincinnati last year. Mm-hmm. We, the crowd was well into that match. Like we were, we were doing some work in the press room, and we we were torn away right. to go look at it. It's a like, couple oh times shit, we should watch this because of all the roars from the crowd. Yeah. And if the knock on that win was that he was playing a clearly depleted Zverev, this was the opposite of that. This well, was him running through a slew of pretty solid to very good opponents to have his moment. He beat Del Potro. He beat Chung, who is the champion of the next gen tournament and obviously the semifinalist at the Australian Open. Shapovalov, or Sharapovalova. 
oh as God. some of those folks said. <laughs> and Goyovchik in the final. And I have to say, I butchered his name last time we said it. Did you so say th- Goyovitz? Something like that. Yeah, so I think it's closer to Goyovchik. At the end of, or in the second half of last year, he won the title in Mets. So he's kind of an up-and-coming player. TFO not only won his first final, or won his first title, he reached his first final and his first semi-final on the ATP Tour. So there were a lot of firsts. He's a really likable guy. As an American tennis fan, meaning I am American and a tennis fan, okay. not necessarily a fan of American tennis, <laughs> Francis Tiafo is someone I can really get behind, that I can totally endorse, because there's none of the bullshit. There's yet, you know, I get mad at the refer or at the umpire. I do a little dramatic fall down at the net, and then it's over. He's not calling his opponent's names. He's not carrying on like a spoiled baby. He's just getting down to business. I like everything I've seen from Francis so far. This is the place I am in my life as a tennis fan in terms of. We've talked about acquiring new faves, specifically on the WTA. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the ATP, not just American men, but men in general, it's going to take me a good two seasons of keeping a close eye on somebody and my side eye on somebody Mm -hmm. before I'm like, I'm ready to stand you. Because these (laughs) men are out here just one emotional outburst away from some high-key fuckery that will just end it forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Francis, you know, I'm with it. I'm I'm willing to be a fan. I'm not saying I'm standing yet. That takes mm-hmm. a whole new level. But he's been a talent that we've been talking about forever. And he's somebody who has so much talent, has a 130 mile per hour serve, he has, has power, but he has relied on defense a lot. He's super fast, right? And so I want to see him be more aggressive. And I think we saw that in this tournament. There were good signs. He took it took him eight match points to beat Chung, but like he's he's putting things together, and he's still so young in the context of men's tennis that that I'm excited. He's 20 years old. He's got the most unorthodox forehand you will see, <laughs> and he also, aside from Bernard Tomic, uh huh, or Ernest Gulbis, maybe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's out there. Put it that way. And mm-hmm. he also has the the backstory the narrative of where he came from as a young tennis player. He mm-hmm. didn't have the country club upbringing right. in coming to his tennis fame. It's been widely circulated that his father was a janitor and that's how he paid for, well, not paid for, that's how he was able to practice because mm-hmm. his father was a janitor at a tennis complex and so Francis was able to come in at night and play and practice yeah, in the courts, right? basically. Karen Hachanov. Oh, well done. You were going to say he won the Marseille title? I was waiting for... I'm just recovering from, like, not totally butchering that. <laughs> yeah. That's all I could get out. He beat Luca Pouy in the Marseille final. The French guys have, like, owned this place for a long time. Songa was a defending champion. I know I always digress to talking about Joe Wilfried Songa. Mm. I'm going to put you on blast dropped, Yeah, he, He's dropped to number 36 in the rankings. You, and I thought it was a mistake. I really thought it was a joke and that I was not reading it properly. I had to do research. And, like, I thought he was like... He didn't have to do research. I did. I told you what was up. Because no. you, you DM'd me your work. I said that can't I'm be here real. on my day off yesterday. I get this DM. Panicked. Panicked. Songa's 36, this must be a typo. I'm like, well, <laughs> he, he won two titles in the, this time last year. You know, like, he clearly has not defended them. And he's like, and you're like, but he has, like, two other titles. He has two other titles and then and another a semifinal and, and a quarterfinal. I'm like, yeah, of 250s. And then you were like something like, you rude bitch. <laughs> yes, that sounds like me. You know what, Joe, you're number one in my heart. I remember those shorts you wore in Australia, and I'll remember them forever. Okay. Alison Van Oetvank defeated Dominika Sibokova in Budapest for the title. This is a player who was on the come-up a couple of years ago and kind of, mm-hmm. through injury and, and poor results, just kind of went away a little bit. And welcome back. You have a little bit of a messy finish to the episode in that you want to totally... I feel like this is one of your favorite topics every year now. Just <laughs> totally dumping on the Dubai men's event. My point was that the Dubai event has gotten bodied by Acapulco. Like, absolutely destroyed. Because 
the ATP has been out here for a long time con trying to convince us that Dubai was really, really important. And Acapulco decided to change to hard courts. They were clay for a long time. Venus actually won it on clay. Do you remember uh -huh, that? Yes. With the, her sombrero. Yeah. And since Acapulco turned to hard court, it's close to California, so it's close to Indian Wells. The draw there is utterly superior to Dubai. They're both 500-level events. It's a tale of two events. Their trajectories have gone in complete opposite directions. Correct. It's crazy what the Acapulco field looks like now compared to what it did back then. It's got the vistas. The ATP <laughs> released this video of Dominic Team and that other tall person that he was with in the helicopter. <laughs> Are you talking about Azverev? I'm talking about Alexander. Mm -hmm. And the scenes, pristine water. And there's actually people in the stands, which is another thing. Oh my god. A few facts for people who think we're being messy. There were only four top 30 players in Dubai this year. Dimitrov was the top seed, and he's already lost to Malek Jaziri. That is a huge blow to the profile of that event. Djokovic, I believe, has won Dubai a few times, which obviously upped the, the cachet of that tournament. But I don't, I don't really know where they're at at this point. It just makes so much more sense for the guys to be in the Western Hemisphere within a few hours plane ride of Indian Wells, so close to this important tournament, right? And on the other hand, Acapulco has six of the top 10 players, five now after Nadal withdrew. Right. There's also Dominic Team and Alex Zverev. Okay, that's the end of the episode. I feel like that's my official role now. <laughs> to just say, like, that's it. <laughs> to shut me up? Yeah, we're done, that's it. We'll be back another time. <laughs> I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The Body Serve is on Twitter at The Body Serve. Similarly on Instagram at The Body Serve. Till next time. <laughs>